Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Now, we've been looking at this for several years at Mitchell, and we've assembled a group to talk today about some of our conclusions. So first and foremost, we have Caitlin Lee from the Mitchell Institute. So welcome, Caitlin. Hey, Slick. Great to be here. Great to have you. And also our very own Mark Gunzinger. Hey, great to be back on the podcast, Slick. Awesome. Well, Caitlin and Mark co-authored a recent Mitchell Institute study on the requirements for fielding autonomous drones for the Indo-Pacific theater. And also we have two other experts who partnered with Caitlin and Gonzo on this report. We have Dr. Doug Meter with us. Hey there. And Doug is the Autonomous Collaborative Vehicles Portfolio Manager within AFRL's Aerospace Systems Directorate. And last but not least, we have Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Scud Slaughter, the lead for Autonomous Collaborative Platforms in the Headquarters Strategy, Integration and Requirements Directorate. So Scuds, welcome to the show. Hey Slick, thanks. All right, so really appreciate having everybody here and we just wanna level this discussion right off the bat. Let's be really clear about what a drone swarm is and why an organization like the Air Force or the People's Liberation Army Air Force might find a drone swarm useful in theory. So Caitlin, you wanna kick this off? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Slick. Um, so, you know, as as you mentioned in the intro, we've seen some of these large masses of drones being used by both Russia and Ukraine in that conflict. And what those are, you could really kind of think about them as proto-swarms. Like, they're individually operated, but the sum is greater than the parts. And by operating in these large numbers, they can sort of create targeting confusion and overwhelm an adversary. And so you can immediately start to see the military utility there. But you really can think of those as more like proto-swarms. These are aren't sort of the full up swarm, the kind of sci-fi swarm that you think about from Ender's Game or the show Black Mirror, if you've seen that, where really what that is, is these the drones are fully autonomous. They're thinking for themselves. They're interacting with each other just like a swarm of killer bees. So the swarm can actually work faster than a human in that context, and it can and and also get at that mass issue that the protoswarms do. Really, though, that's the holy grail is where you have those drone swarms operating sort of completely independently without human control. And that's really kind of where all this autonomy technology is is eventually headed. And I think the reason that this is interesting from a military perspective is there's, there's sort of four different things going on. First is, as I mentioned, if you have relatively autonomous drones, that really speeds up your decision making. You're not going back always to a human operator to get that input, that control input. And going fast is very important when you're dealing with an adversary that also has advanced technology and is looking to get inside your decision cycle. The second one I also sort of mentioned is overwhelming the adversary. You know, you can really complicate the adversary's targeting calculus when you start to get at mass and, and when you think about drones. And then another reason that drone swarms are particularly interesting where like, they're operating independently is that you can potentially really reduce burden on human operators. And so if you think about this in the context of a great power conflict where human capital has had a premium, there's potentially high combat attrition, anything you can do to automate processes or technology is going to reduce burden on air crew. And then finally, again, in this high kind of high combat attrition scenario, 
Drones can be especially useful, especially in large numbers, to reduce that risk to force, to preserve those air crews and those aircraft so that they can fight another day and sort of bring more capacity to the fight. And so those are just a few of the reasons I think that military technology is really headed in this direction of certainly bringing mass to the battle space with drones, but also looking increasingly to introduce a greater level of autonomy into these systems and so that they can be not just sort of orienting themselves in the environment and acting, but also collaborating with other drones. Yeah, awesome. I really appreciate that that overview. And, and Gonzo, I want to switch over to you for a second. In the big picture, can you tell us what kind of challenges we would expect to face in such a conflict with Russia or China? So you know, we, we often hear a lot about anti-access area denial. So what is that and how would that affect our ability to operate in a theater of war? Yeah, happy to pitch into that. Now, the security environment in Europe and the Western Pacific today is very different than the more benign conditions of the 1990s that the foreign part of duties rationale to haul out of combat air forces and other capabilities. And despite years of lip service paid to the rise of China, DD continued to direct the services to size and shape their forces for regional conflicts with lesser rogue states like Iran and North Korea. Now that finally changed when the 2018 National Defense Strategy established defeating Chinese aggression as DD's new pacing threat. And, and that was a long overdue acknowledgement that the military modernization campaign in China began after Desert Storm has transformed the PLA into a peer adversary. So China has now reached parity with the U.S. military in many of its capabilities. Like Russia, China has fielded offensive and, and defensive A-280 capabilities that are designed to keep U.S. forces at arm's length and suppress our operations long enough for a PLA offensive to succeed. China has multiple types of low observable aircraft, long range air to air missiles that are carried internally by stealthy fighters that are designed to intercept our surveillance aircraft and air refueling tankers that joint force operations depend on. And it also has inventories of other long range weapons like the DF 21D anti ship ballistic missile, anti ship and land attack cruise missiles, and now operational hypersonic weapons. They can strike U.S. forces and bases well beyond the Pacific's first island chain. So what does all this mean? Now, without exaggeration, these threats have eroded our ability to project decisive military power. And with that, I mean, everything we must do to project power forward is now at risk. Our logistics, our ability to generate combat air sorties forward, our networks, our kill chains, everything is going to be contested. We're going to have to fight to gain entry to a theater, fight to survive at our operating locations, fight to reach target areas, and then fight to recover our air bases. So we've got a lot of catching up to do, given that most of our forces still consist of legacy systems that lack sufficient survivability, lethality, range, and capacity. And that's creating a window of opportunity for China to pull the trigger on an offensive against Taiwan or elsewhere inside the first island chain, which is why that is now DOD's pacing threat for its future force design. Yeah, Gonzo, again, appreciate laying that down for us. I want to throw one out for all of you. How can drones mitigate some of the risks that we'll see in a great power conflict? Yeah, you know, Slick, Gonzo, again, I'm happy to start it off. Let me take a two-track approach to an answer. First is a force planner and second as a former bomber pilot. Now, from a force planning perspective, 
We need more combat air, including long-range strike capacity to defeat Chinese aggression, like I just laid out. Now, our bomber force is about one-third the size of the force that was on the ramp when the Berlin Wall fell, and it simply can't create war-winning effects at range at the scale needed to defeat a PLA campaign. So how can the Air Force rapidly fill this capability capacity gap? Now, part of the answer, of course, is a maximized B-21 acquisition. And I think 20 per year would be a start. But buying significant numbers of lower cost CCAs is another part of the answer. Now, as some say, well, that's buying force structure on the cheap, but I think it's doing it on the smart. The B-21 was rolled out in December and that gained a lot of press attention, but you didn't hear much about the rest of the family systems that will complement it. And I think CCAs will clearly be part of that family, that force design. So from operator's perspective, some of those CCAs could be equipped to do active and passive sensing to locate mobile targets and then pass target queuing information to my penetrating bomber. And that would increase my lethality. And since I wouldn't have to admit to find those targets, I can better avoid detection. Now, other CCAs could act as decoys, jam enemy comms, link in their IADs, and, and possibly even perform counter-air missions, again, to improve the survivability of my jet and the weapons I launch. And that would also present a more complex challenge to an enemy who must characterize threats and then prioritize targets. Now, today, the PLA would be looking for a penetrating B-2, F-22, and F-35. But with CCAs as part of my strike package, they might have to honor all potential threats and waste SAMs and other defenses against lower cost systems, which would impose costs on them and increase my potential for mission success. So count me in as a big fan of a more heterogeneous force, including CCAs in the future. Hey, Slick Scuds. Just another thought that I think echoes what Gonzo just gave us is that when we look at our platforms today, we, we typically reach a point where it's almost a point of diminished returns where we can't really continue to upgrade individually or specifically that individual platform in order to increase its survivability and lethality. And that's something that I think, Gonzo, you're touching on is that in order to plan for a force that is flexible in the future that can bring on new technologies, downloading some of the more menial or less difficult tasks or new upgrades to platforms like CCAs is an opportunity for us and to, to fill capability gaps. And we commonly find in our acquisition timelines that while we are in pursuit of a platform that we realize there are upgrades or there's new technology available and yet we can't kind of crack in or break into that platform's production timeline or we have to come up with creative measures to be able to have that kind of flexibility. So for that reason, I think autonomous drones give us an opportunity to identify capability gaps more, gaps more rapidly, be more responsive to them, and reduce really the impact of what it would be if we lost, say, a B-21 in combat versus something that's specific to a single or just a low number of tasks that increases the survivability that Gonzo was just speaking to. Yeah, and just to pile on, I'm actually going to, and Scuds, jump in here. I'm going to steal an analogy that you told me about a while back, the money ball analogy, which I love, which is this idea of, like, 
you know, you're going to war, not everyone has to be like that exquisite B2 platform. So if you think about the Oakland A's and, you know, 2001, they had some really great pitching, you know, Barry Zito, Cy Young winner. So you need the great pitchers, but you also need those reliable position players that just get on base. So you can kind of think about some of these drones, like these large numbers of drones as just those reliable position players where you can offload some of those tasks. Like, you know, do you need the bomber to go hunt for a tell for like four hours, exposing itself to risk? Like maybe that's something you can have your drones do, especially if you've got a lot of them and you can do the Dave Ockmanic thing where you create an ISR mesh. So I think there's just a real opportunity there. And I, I just love that analogy, Scud. So I wanted to pull that one out. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for citing me on that. I, I think it really does apply, though, to the four principles that you laid out initially to be able to say, hey, if I can if I can basically disaggregate my capability across the number of players available and find find now an aggregate or some of all of those that wins championships, then we, then let's do that versus let's try to continually find the now half a billion dollar player every time free agency opens up. And that's really, you know, half a billion dollar price tags is what we're looking at per per copy of our jets these days. So I think I think it does apply there. Yeah, that 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 is really a great point. And 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 I like, you know, the the specificity in, in which, you know, we're gonna execute some of these missions instead of just throwing, you know, the ultra expensive, you know, high-end piece of equipment at the threat there. I do want to get to Dr. Mater in here. So, you know, Doug, you're the scientist, you know, how far are these technologies from becoming a, a reality? I mean, is this, is this, you know, science fiction or is this real? Well, you know, the, the, the timeline equation, there's a lot of variables in that. So when we look at these as systems and again, calling back to Gonzo's comments on what really makes these things different in the future force structure is the the mass that they can present and that's really what's driving a, a lot of these technologies and, and really that's what's driving the whole the whole autonomy problem so if we break down these uh, these systems into you know it's five basic components it's an air vehicle it's an airframe propulsion and a power and thermal system and the other subsystems for it that's something we can do today we can't do it we're, what we're really working on here at AFRL is how do we make those things less expensive. So we're, we're constantly working on bending that cost curve so we can get these downs from, you know, eight digit numbers down into a seven digit numbers. From a payload standpoint, we're looking at smaller form factors. These vehicles are logically because they're, we're going to be using lots of them and trying to keep them affordable. They're likely going to be smaller. So making that real effect that we're trying to deliver, whether it's a weapon or a sensor, fit into the form factors of these smaller vehicles. That's something else we're working on too. Networks and comm, again, a huge thing. But really the, the thing what we're getting at now is two very intertwined portions of the of the equation. And that's the, how do we integrate the human with, this, with these systems? And what is the autonomy and where is it gonna go? So right now, you know, we are basically taking the baby steps, crawl, walk, run, and we're probably gonna stumble occasionally along the way getting there. Autonomy is not, it's, it's not gonna be something that comes in a box with a big A on autonomy saying it's all finished. It's gonna come in chunks. And why do we say that? You know, when you look at, the way I like to look at, especially early autonomy, because we're going to be operating these things in large numbers, and we want to minimize the human footprint, both from an operator and a maintainer and logistics standpoint, we need to be able to basically develop synthetic crew members. We need synthetic pilots, navigators, flight engineers, radio operators, EW, sensor operators, bombardiers. We need to be able to develop those behaviors 
and they're being and they're all being developed in various parts of the laboratory. Our sensor folks are working on sensor autonomy algorithms. Here in air vehicles, we're working on flight control algorithms, and and on and on. So really, what we're trying to get at is where it's it's going to be a crawl walk run where it's not unlike training a human crew member. We have to teach them how to operate the airplane first, then we can teach them how to employ it as a weapon system. So right now, programs like Skyborg, which has developed an autonomy course system, a backbone upon which we can add tactical behaviors, basically teach these systems to do new tactics and things like that. It gives us an opportunity to go out and do experimentation and testing with them, which will take a little while, but that's okay, because even if these systems were dropped on a ramp today at a fighter unit, it would take the combat air forces a little bit of time to learn how this impacts their tactics and how to operate these vehicles as teams. So what we're seeing on our end is it's, it's probably gonna be an incremental approach. They're gonna gradually learn how to do things more and more, how to get in and out of airports, how to, how to coordinate and stay separate from manned aircraft and then continually work towards being able to do higher end tactics. And from a from a teaming standpoint, that also might follow a spectrum where early on, those who are controlling these, and maybe the better word is commanding them and minimizing the footprint, that might be from a ground control station and it might be a number of vehicles. And then once we get that under us, maybe we'll move on to putting the ground control station on an airborne control station like an ABM and then eventually passing passing off tactical and operational control to maybe a two-seat fighter and then a single-seat fighter. So it's going to be an incremental approach to get these. So can't give you an exact date, but know that we're, we're, we're in the early stages and making good progress, and these things will be a reality before you know it. Well, Doug, and you do make a great point here is, and you said the word that I love, this is a spectrum of utilization, right? So it's not a one size fits all or, or one platform fits all when we talk about CCAs in general. So I really appreciate that you put that out there because it's going to be everything from a, a loyal wingman on an F-35 or, or an NGAD or something that might seem a little more traditional, like a mauled or something like that. But so I do appreciate you throwing that all out there for us. And Caitlin, I've got to ask this question after Doug's comments of how hard would it be to put large numbers of autonomous drones in the battle space quickly? I think it's actually sort of super hard and probably one of the most under-examined parts of sort of this question of how do we field large numbers of drones for, for combat operations. So if you think of like the popular depictions or just like infinite numbers of these drones like falling out the back of a C-130 or on the like that TV show I mentioned, Black Mirror, like there's these like drone bees that just swarm on this window pane just ready to go do bad stuff. And so it seems like it's sort of easy. But in reality, think about, as Gonzo talked about earlier, this is a really challenging combat environment that we're preparing for in both the Indo-Pacific and in Europe. And so uh, one of the things, and I have to give credit here to Rand, which has been doing work on this for probably a decade now, it's like this idea of like, how do you actually <laughs> operate aircraft and turn sorties under attack. And so RAND has this whole body of research called Combat Operations and Denied Environments. They just put out a really interesting perspective piece summarizing that work. But the key thing about that is they talk about how all of our weapon systems and people are going to have to basically withstand attacks, adapt to enemy adversary behavior, and continue generating sufficient combat power to achieve objectives, even though the enemy continues to adapt and attacks them. And so the real question is, how do you 
how do you generate these like drone swarms, masses, however they're controlled at scale while under attack? So the problem applies to all combat systems, but it's drones present both a real challenge uh, because of the size of the potential force, but also an opportunity. And I think we're going to get into that more in a minute. But some of the things we'll need to think through are like, well, how long, you know, if how do the drones take off and land? Because that affects their turn time. How, how What is the manning requirement? Like, do you need a crew chief? Like, what's the maintainer situation? What's the manpower requirement? Are the drones based in theater? Are they an inside force? And so do they have to be off runway so that they don't get attacked when the PLA targets are main operating bases? Or are they an outside force, which implies a much longer range for those drones? And and these issues become particularly sharp, I think, in the Indo-Pacific because there are such long ranges. So even if you base your drones inside theater, you're still looking at needing to fly them a few hundred miles. Let's say you're in the Ryukus. You've still got to sort of build drones that are capable enough to fly over water and and operate at some range. So these drones also probably look a little bit different than some of the drones we've seen have such great success in Ukraine. These are these are not quadcopters that we're talking about. So I think some of these logistics issues and generating combat power under attack issues are things that we really need to explore. And it's a great moment to do it because we're, we're kind of clean sheet designing these drones. Like we can do this. We can design these drones in ways that are optimized to operate in these really contested environments. So in that way, it's a huge opportunity. And I'm looking forward to hearing more from Scuds and Doug on sort of like, how do we capitalize on that? Yeah. And you mentioned a bit to unpack it and what you mentioned, but of course, the big thing that that struck me in one of your comments of like dumping these things out of the back of a C-130, you go, well, okay, I don't think A2 AD environment equals C-130, right? Yeah. So, so I really want to get to the point of if they're going to be the delivery method for these for this swarm drone scenario, now these drones have a really far way to go, as you mentioned. So I, I wanna bring SCUDs in to really, let's start from the beginning here. So can you walk us through some of the logistics challenges that you're thinking about that are involved in simply getting these drones into theater on a relevant timeline? Yeah, absolutely, Slick. I'll, I'll start with this. Our branch that is working on autonomous drone development for the last three years has been about 50% aircraft maintainers. And so that is something that I think is unique by comparison to a lot of teams that are leading capability development with regards to air vehicles, because it is typically operators like myself or previous operators who have that experience and haven't spent their career worried about the logistics of getting into and out of theater. And we have a template in the Air Force that I think we've grown very used to that we will have large main operating bases that we will be able to deploy our forces to in large numbers and kind of mass our forces in that sense. I don't want to talk about main operating bases right now, but when you, as you pointed out, Kayla, when you look at the Pacific theater, the scale and the lack of ability to, to have those main operating bases are, are real factors that have to be considered in the design of our air vehicles going forward. So that I think is the first thing to look at is what are the design elements that we can consider in our air vehicles that account for the distances associated with the Pacific theater. We're doing a lot of that and and that'll play into what runways may or may not be available, i.e. can we get away from an eight to 10,000 foot runway dynamic and we think we can with uncrewed systems because 
the uncrewed systems we've been able to field, even those with longer ranges, are, are able to use runways that are much shorter. And that will start to open up opportunities. There are other design elements that could take into account pre-positioning. For example, if you have a mission set that requires a large number really fast, then maybe you pre-position those in a coffin or storage container and you have the design element of this needs to have a shelf life in a tropical environment for 10 years with very minimal interaction from a maintainer or a logistician that's going to make sure that that system needs to be ready with minimal input or interaction from a maintainer that would need to make sure that that system is available when called upon. So we're going to have a theme or we've experienced a theme in our autonomous capability development that there are spectrums to a lot of things that don't typically get considered when you look at some of our major aircraft acquisition programs. And so the spectrum of deployability, the spectrum of container ability or preposition ability to make up words on the spot, we're taking a look at all of those and we think we're making some headway with with our industry partners that have suggested if, if we can be different than the way we've been for the past few decades, that there's an opportunity there. So I think that's kind of the first part. Let's look at design elements of the air vehicles. The next part is you brought up the, the Ryukus. We don't have a lot of real estate that is U.S. real estate in theater, right? And so we're very reliant upon our relationships with our allies and partners in theater. And I don't think the dynamic fundamentally will be different when it comes to can we preposition or can we count on being able to leverage your your nation when we need to it's going to be the same type of negotiations with the added factor of now we want to put drones into your country and that just brings upon kind of the policy questions and really the discomfort that folks have with this is unmanned if everything goes wrong, there's no one there to stop it or to fix it. And so there's going to be an education piece that it couples that policy as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, we're, we're really going to have to break a lot of traditional paradigms of a uh, runway from a main operating base or forward operating base, et cetera. You, you touched on something that I wanted to, to bring Doug in on. And Doug, can you talk about the design implications of basing autonomous drones at locations like with big runways versus a more austere location? Well, we've actually been looking at that problem from the spectrum as you've described it all the way from 8,000 foot typical military grade runway down to zero takeoff length and looking and and there are trades there and that's what's important obviously the implications are the disadvantages to that trade makes is is that juice worth the squeeze so starting off with a lot of people have seen the work we did with kratos building the xq-58 that was part of our portfolio that aircraft is rocket launch and parachute recovered that is a great option for certain missions and you can definitely hide those in a variety of places and launch and recover them and have a fairly good sense of security however you know turning an aircraft by putting rockets on it and repacking its parachute and things like that that's gonna that's gonna inhibit turn time just a little bit could we turn an aircraft like that pretty fast absolutely would it be as fast as a typical conventionally geared aircraft i don't think so we're also looking at if you want to get off of a austere runway, whether that is a unimproved surface or whether it's merely a much, much shorter runway than we typically operate from, maybe three to 4,000 feet, or maybe it's even a highway. Think uh, what some of our plans were in Europe, launching and recovering A-10s or Harriers from, from the Audubon. 
that is something we can do too, but the implications there are in order to get off of a short runway and to land on a short runway as well, is you have to really lean on high lift and high thrust. And so if, if, we, if we try to optimize towards the launch and recovery, we might have to give on the mission. You know, we always point in air vehicle design, you know, the iron triangle of air vehicle design is speed, payload and range. You could have one of those, a lot of one, if you give on the other two, you could have two if you give on the other one. And if you want a, a you know, stout performance in all three, you're gonna have to do a, a lot of compromising. So that's the decision that, that has to be made is really what is the CONOP gonna look like? Where are we gonna operate these from? And then maybe it'll, certain missions would be more amenable to certain things. So for example, an ISR aircraft that may be a little more stood off, maybe we can put a bigger wing on that, that gives it better endurance, but also gives it better low speed performance to get on and off of a short runway. But an aircraft that might be a maneuvering vehicle with a, with a, with a, with a smaller wing and a higher, a higher loading factor, that might be something that we'd have to go the thrust route to get it on and off from a short runway. So that's the design implication. I think one conversation that we haven't really quite started yet is the procedural or cultural implication of launching these these aircraft, particularly in austere locations. And where I'm going at with that is, we basically define runway length requirements based on accelerating to an engine failure speed, a critical engine failure, and decelerating to a stop. If you are operating a relatively low cost aircraft in a forward posture, do we really need that ability to get the aircraft stopped or is it worth it to possibly occasionally lose an aircraft to a system failure like that and only use the runway we absolutely need to get off the ground. Maybe we can back off on some of the conservatism that we have, have had to use because of our aircraft are both expensive and have humans in it. You know, that's, that's a procedural thing that's probably part of the future equation of how we determine how we design these aircraft and how we actually employ them and deploy them. Yeah, that, that is a great point to make. I mean, from an operational standpoint, we are really going to have to change how we do business. I do want to go back to SCUDs for a second. And um, of course, you know, the prior enlisted maintainer and me got excited when you're like, hey, we've got 50% maintenance on our team to really bake this into the equation from the beginning. So that that is a really interesting concept. And, and I'm excited to understand when you think about the operations and maintenance of large numbers of drones in a contested environment, just what are some of the things that you and your team are identifying? So I'll reiterate what I said previously, Slick, and great to hear that you've got some maintenance background. I actually started my Air Force career as a maintainer as well. My heart, my roots are deep there. So I'll start with the design element. Our platforms today are not designed for what I would call a minimal maintenance footprint requirement. We have crew chiefs for our large aircraft. We have multiple crew chiefs required to launch sorties. If a system or subsystem on that aircraft goes bad, if you will, or, or breaks down, we bring in specialists to repair those systems. And those systems tend to be more and more numerous as our platforms become more capable and exquisite. So the challenge there is one of the design elements that we can consider is if we're designing CCAs to only do one or two specific tasks, can we design them with the understanding that maybe we don't need a specialist for every subsystem or component of the aircraft, and we can start to generalize our maintainers. 
what that will look like is someone, maybe we can reduce or cut the requirement for someone who's an avionics specialist, but there will probably be a little bit more avionics knowledge required of someone who is in a typical crew chief role that is launching the aircraft. So what will enable success in that area is the idea that let's bake into the design a more simplistic nature and then let's take a look at how we train the humans that will launch and recover those sorties so that they're prepared for that more simplified approach. I think it's a comparison I would make would be when you look at automotive technicians today that are certified to work on numerous types of vehicles and the concepts are fairly consistent across those and they are able to work on any brand of vehicle that is brought into the shop. So again, going to the design element, but that has implications with our training as well of, of the airmen that'll be working on them. I think to Doug's point of if we have systems that we are prepared to accept more risk, that risk doesn't necessarily only need to be in active combat when you are toe to toe with the enemy. Maybe that risk is in the launch and recovery. Maybe that risk is in the fact that one will break earlier than another, but overall, the average of the fleet is going to last for a certain period of time. And that period of time is probably a lot less than a 5,000 hour service life that we tend to expect from the, the major platforms that, that we purchase. And then finally, the opportunity to disperse our force is gonna be key to autonomous drone success in, in the Pacific. And we've gotta get away from main operating base concepts that allow for huge fuel depots, if you will, and just the fuel trucks that are running all over the flight line to refuel the aircraft. Now, from what we see, these aircraft are going to require a lot less fuel, a lot less by comparison to what crewed aircraft require, but potentially or arguably even less than what we're seeing in our current remotely piloted aircraft fleet of MQ-9 and RQ-4. So, that means there will be a smaller fuel requirement, but as we disperse our force, we, we also are trying to keep in mind the idea that now we're increasing the number of spokes that the hub is required to support in theater as well. So we're trying to find the balance. Again, there's a spectrum there, and we're trying to avoid some of the absolutes that I think are pretty doctrinal, if you will, to the crude platforms that we have. Yeah, just as you're discussing this, Scuds, I'm really like peeling it back, you know, the idea of, and I was an avionics guy, so I can talk to this in the sense that I had a broad understanding of radar all the way down to repair of radar components, circuit cards. I mean, literally taking a, a resistor off of a, of a circuit card, soldering and resoldering down to that level. But it's almost like you had like th this unionized idea that like, well, I was a targeting pod guy, so I could work on a targeting pod. I could work on the radar that was on the lantern system as, as an example, but I, I couldn't work on the front end fire control radar when I was stationed at a, an F-15 or an F-16 base, right? Because it was like, oh, you can't touch that. That's not in your, your shred out or whatever, right? So I, I really love the idea that from a, a generalized sense, you, you take the specificity out of the airmen that are on the ground servicing and maintaining the, the airplanes or the CCA. So that's, that's a really important piece. And obviously we talked about the design 
changes, if it's EW or a kinetic uh, carrying type of, type of CCA. But I really want to step back and and think about how you know these kinetic or EW threats could you know pose a major challenge in terms of combat attrition. So really, what we're getting at, and you you touched on it, so I really want to dive into how does this risk shape our thinking about autonomous drone design? If it's expendable, attributable, reusable, just that mindset. What are you guys thinking about there? Slick, I think what's going to be key is understanding that just like in any any combat environment, our adversaries are going to try to find the weaknesses or the seams in our force, the ability that they'll have to leverage or to, to get inside of, of our system. And autonomous drones aren't going to be immune to that. And Gonzo actually touched on the need to protect all kinds of levels of, you know, everything will be contested in this environment. So we have to expect that. And when we talk about our autonomous drones, our team is the Autonomous Collaborative Platform team. So the collaboration is going to ride on a network across the system, and that's going to require some protected, protected, protected communication for them. So it'll be important for us to make sure that all of those, all of that security is in place. With regards to the kinetic challenges, I think I'm echoing again what Gonzo stated in the opening is that if we have less expensive systems that are starting to get into an, in a, an enemy's defense structure and they have to be targeted because the enemy doesn't know if that is the key node in the system or not, and we we force them to start to expend their 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 weaponry on these systems, then again that will be a win every time the B21 or NGAD is in a fight and loses one of its CCA wingmen at that point. There's there's some defense and dispersal and maneuverability that our agile combat employment doctrine is developing that's going to be key. I think it'll be really difficult for anyone to deny all communications all the time. So I think we can make a safe assumption that no one's going to be able to completely black us out if, if we continue down this path that we're on for development. With autonomous drones, there absolutely is an opportunity for us to look at how we spread risk across the force and how we download some of that risk. And and so when we I'm going to go back here, Slick, to one thing I in my first maintenance assignment was actually the avionics backshop flight commander. So I know exactly what you're talking about, because we had airmen who were allowed to work on the lantern targeting and navigation system. We had airmen that could work on the EW pod for the F-16, and we had airmen that could work on some of the other avionics components in the back shop. And it was at times frustrating because I could see the capability that they had, but they weren't to, to be able to understand what each of the different shops were doing. But because of the training structure, and really that was, I'm gonna assume was based on the need for specialists to understand the system at such an in-depth level, there wasn't an ability to cross flow those airmen, say from the lantern shop to the EW pod shop. They were very stove piped in, in that. And the, it's because those systems were designed to be that difficult to work on. With autonomous drones and the components we put on, we have to be deliberate about making sure that those systems are simpler. From what I can tell, there is a lot out there that has been done that hasn't been incorporated into our Air Force 
to be able to do that with regards to our aircraft. And so I think what we're advocating for is for our industry partners and, and really the team at AFRL is doing a good job from what I can, from what I've seen of saying, you've got to bring down the complexity because this is how it's going to be a capability in the future for us. So what that yields, if you will, is an idea that, okay, the system is simpler. It will arguably be less expensive dollar wise, and it will be less costly to the force if it is lost in combat or lost in any other scenario. So if we can do that, then we start to find ourselves between the exquisite B-21 and F-35 and NGAD platforms and the expendable single-use weapons that we have. And we have this spot that we call the risk tolerance or attritable space that we're exploring. And so being able to to work with that spectrum has allowed us to consider a lot of those, as I previously advocated, design elements that are different from what we're used to today. We're not trying to guarantee that a human comes home, but we're also not trying to lose these every time because we believe that if an enemy decides not to shoot them down, they will have continued value to the force. Gonzo here. Let me um, amplify something as Scud said, and I, I agree with what you said, Scud. There's been a lot of focus on expendable, attributable, or reusable. What do they cost? What do they cost? And I think that's the wrong question. To me, it's what kind of new operating concepts will open up because we have these capabilities? How can we do things we do today even better because we have them? What can we do with these that we can't do today and what haven't we even thought of today in the way of how we operate? So if I can have a couple of critical CCAs and say, okay, we're in a threat situation. I'm going to command you two CCAs to go out and die for to guarantee mission success and that my bomber will get home. Great. But that's, that's the way I look at it. Think of it through operations, the operational concepts that these things could empower. And then we can talk about costs and, and what the bounds on that are for each of those. Gonzo, I cannot agree more. And I got to tell you that I'm not a cynic at heart, but after years in a fighter squadron, I, I've learned the skill set pretty well. But two things for you. I mean, number one, you, you hope that the OPR for the captain is not executed a mission and brought home all of his CCAs with zero losses, right? Like, because if we don't push the envelope and, and be able to throw proverbial blue four out there inside of Mar to, to execute the, the high threat tactic, then we're not going to utilize these things correctly. We're going to get bogged down in the wrong thing. So I agree with you that the mindset needs to be, yeah, we're not buying these things to be a throwaway scenario, but we're also not holding it against the flight leader, the mission commander, if they, if they lose something, because that's the whole point of this. But Gonzo, I do want to throw one, one question at you. How does this affect the industrial base overall? Yeah, let me tick off just a few quick thoughts. First, I think we all agree the Air Force needs CCAs at scale, not in small handfuls of We'll give it to penetrating ISR, jamming, decoy, counter air, and other capacity it lacks today. Second, multiple variants of less complex, lower cost CCAs that are modular, based on open systems architecture and other innovations can help reduce their costs, as you said, Scuds. And the logistics required to sustain their options, operations could be reduced as well. And more to the point, it can improve defense industry's ability to rapidly iterate 
new models with technologies that are maturing software and even major components. Third, these CCA attributes could open up opportunities for more vendors to produce them and at the scale the Air Force needs. And that could increase competition and the pace of innovation, as well as create a more resilient industrial base to the capacity to surge production. So entrenching in a war with China will be far greater than anything we've experienced since the Cold War. And our force structure doesn't have a real attrition reserve. And plus a, a conflict with China might not be short. So we can't really surge production of F-35s, B-21s, and and GADs of other high-end systems. But we could possibly do that with CCAs and that could be part of the solution for mitigating risk of attrition. And finally, CCA technologies, AI, other software, sharing that with some of our closest allies could help with all these challenges. Specifically, I'm thinking of sharing with Australia, Japan, and the UK, who could also produce these CCAs, which would increase from an ally perspective, our surge production capacity. What are our adversaries doing about drone swarm technology and how should that play into our decision-making? We have every indication that countries like China in particular are exploring. They've made artificial intelligence development a top priority, and we've seen lots of patents come out and other evidence that they are working on swarm technology and particularly on different concepts to launch large numbers of drone swarms. And so this is clearly something that the adversary is working on, and not that that, that is necessarily the raison d'etre for us then to go pursue the very same technology. But one of the things we do have to think about is that this AI-driven approach to drone technology is going to speed up decision cycles for our adversaries. And so one of the things we need to be thinking about is how do we maintain our decision advantage? And I do think that putting more autonomy into our aircraft and operating them in large numbers to make decisions more complicated for the adversary is a really important way to get after that problem. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And and I really appreciate everybody's insight today. Gonzo, Caitlin, congratulations for completing the paper. And I just want to say again, thanks so much. No, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me here. Really a pleasure to work with the Mitchell Institute and to be able to advocate for this. Thanks, Slick. This was fun. See you next time, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe 